Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Ronan McCabe, who's the Head of Portfolio Management at Mercer Investment Management. Uh, welcome. Welcome, Ronan. How are you? Uh, fine, Alex. Um, all, all well. Um, adjusting now to, I think it's <clears throat> week nine or week 10 of working from home, but yeah, all gone well. Fantastic. I thought, you know, one of the, one of the places that we can start today is, you know, to sort of talk about, you know, this this crisis and, and um, you know, how to, how to operate and re, you know, Relook at your portfolio in this type of environment, but before we get there, I thought it's a good idea for you to maybe give a bit of background in your last couple of roles until you get till today, and then we can give a bit of context in terms of how you think about portfolio management. Great, <clears throat> thanks, Alex. So um, I've been in my current role as head of portfolio management <clears throat> for Mercer's um, investment management business here in the Pacific for the last uh, fourteen months. Prior to that, um, I spent four years uh, in the, with the Irish Sovereign Wealth Fund running their global portfolio, um, as well as um, working um, on certain niche projects on the, on the private uh, side of their portfolios as well. Prior to that, and I was in the opposite side of the table where I worked um, <clears throat> on portfolio management and portfolio construction for Pioneer Investments, global investment manager on their fixed income and credit suite of products. Um, and prior to that, my, my experience was predominantly on distressed debt as well as ABS and, and CLO investing. So it, it's interesting my current role um, where I've been on both the as pure asset owner side of the table uh, with Southern Wealth Fund as well as being an asset manager for both a global firm as well as boutique asset manager. So it, it's kind of given me, uh, as well as prior to a bank as well, uh, quite a quite a good broad perspective uh, on, on the industry overall. Mm-hmm. So, given given the sort of the the current volatility that we've seen, it seems to have died back a little bit more. I guess this is a good chance for for all funds, you know, on you know, and the asset owner side to sort of review their investment processes. Curious to see, you know, what have you guys been learning um, over the last few months? Yeah, so like <clears throat> it's quite interesting. I think more in general, you know, there's that old phrase from. Um, I believe it's is a Warren Buffett that when the tide goes out, you you realise who's wearing their swim trunks and not. And I, I think that applies to both portfolios, but also around processes, uh, such as on the operational and implementation side of things. So j- during the initial bout of volatility in March, <clears throat> you know, similar to a lot of other funds here in Australia and probably globally, we spent a lot of time just looking into and reassessing uh, on, on a very, very regular basis, like many times a day, just our liquidity position, um, as volatility and liquidity kind of subsided somewhat, um, we started then, you know, kind of checking into our portfolios a bit more depth, uh, what what our managers were doing, where risks lay in our portfolios. Um, through that as well, though, you know, we, we very much kind of assessed the, the implementation side of things and, and the operational side of things, where there were certain risks, what we were doing right, um, as well as lessons we can maybe learn going forward. Um, so, so there's been there has been a lot of learnings um, over the recent past, uh, and you know, given as you said, it's it's volatility subsided somewhat. I think there will be you know quite a quite an interesting 
period going ahead. You know, there will be a recession. Um, you know, the there's people are still kind of different thoughts out there, whether it be a V, a W, a U, L-shaped uh, recovery, but there will be some sort of initial recession. And um, so the learnings we've been taking note of, we need to kind of put them into practice going forward as well. Are you putting any of those you know, into practice in terms of the SAA or is that still on hold as you try to sort of get a bit more clarity uh, where, where the economy is going? In terms of SAA, so, you know, we're, we're doing an ongoing, which is before the crisis anyway, would have been part of an ongoing process uh, every couple of years, just an SAA kind of rethink and review. Um, you know, there will be kind of some tweaks to that on the basis of uh, the current situation. SAA, though, I suppose by their very nature, um, shouldn't be um, so short-term, so you shouldn't have dramatic short-term changes in your SAA and your SAA assumptions in short-term. They'll be more fed in through from TAA positionings um, as well as your any of your active managers. Um, but, you know, some SAA considerations will be things like around that, you know, long-term premia should be long-term in their nature. But the starting point of where rates are at the moment and uh, where the evolution rates will go and cash um, over the, the, the medium to long term will have an impact on your SAA uh, positioning. Um, so it, it's not necessarily around the SAA, it's more around the day-to-day considerations of um, risk in our portfolios. Um, so a lot of what we do may be coming down a level when we look at our single sector asset allocations, such as, say, for example, emerging market equities. You know, what's the objective of what we have that as an asset allocation or as a beta? Um, what we think the underlying managers we have and the roles they play in it, reassessing and rewriting the thesis, uh, or re-underwriting the thesis of why we've hired certain managers to perform certain roles. Are they still continuing to play that role? And how do we think those objectives and the role of those managers will evolve over time? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's dig into those, those single sector um, options in terms of you know, how, how do you review them? Uh, you know, is there a, is there an early indication in terms of how they've performed? You know, particularly for there's always a, a lot of question about the role of active managers and whether they can deliver. Um, curious yeah. on your thoughts and, and sort of how these guys in different sectors have been performing. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. You know, from what we've seen in our phones and what we've seen more broadly across different asset classes, I think Q1, you know, and the recent volatility in the market environment wasn't particularly kind for active management in general. I think, you know, a lot of that is probably more, it was over a six-week period from mid-February to, to March, the end of March. So you, you've probably seen yourself, there's a lot of these charts and graphs going around showing the severity and what I would say the violence um, of the of the, the market turmoil uh, in that last six weeks of the quarter. So a lot of managers were probably positioned for growth um, over 2020 into 2021 with uh, any recession kind of coming back into 21 into 22. So anything that even with a slight pro-growth, slight risk on, given the nature of the the, the market um, turmoil would have been severely impacted. It was interesting, the initial figures we've seen for April, there's been quite a dramatic re- recovery in, in active management overall. So I try and kind of, you know, stay away from the short-term nature of, of what that is and the roles and the performance per se of active managers. But if there's a certain manager, we believe they have a certain role to play in a portfolio and hasn't performed that certain role, you know, notwithstanding caveats of why that may be, you know, that's very much a reason why we will kind of look to kind of revisit that and, you know, very much engaging and talking with the managers that 
understanding, you know, this is why you've been hired, this is a role of what you should be doing. Uh, such certain market environments happened, your performance was X, you know, what was the reasons for that, you know, uh, trying to understand maybe learnings from managers uh, as well as, you know, what insights they've seen, what they've learned themselves. And um, again, I, I think it is important to note that the very nature of the, the market events in, in Q1, and, and let's say the second half Q1, you know, whether you want to concern them as a black swan or extreme left tail event, you know, that no one, no one could envisage the severity and the words such as unprecedented has been used and unprecedented at the times. Um, but it, it was something known, you know, the pa- pandemic of this nature that you would have 80% of the world's population effectively working from home or remote working. So portfolios in general weren't uh, set up for that. However, going forward, there will be a lot of economic uncertainty. So how are managers positioned for that going forward um, and how do them, their organizations because there will be a lot of kind of change going forward uh, so it's very much trying to get into the bottom of that the, the question about how to how to really review active managers is is a constant challenge right because they'll they'll say well it's too short you know, you've, you've only looked at us over a certain quarter or a certain month or a certain year or a certain two years but i guess one of the one of the real big problems in terms of trying to evaluate them is you know, there is a lot of passive flows. There is a lot of systematic trading in the markets. Um, there was also a, a huge demand on liquidity in markets around that that period. And sometimes there can be some very unfair advantages that that play into to some of these active managers that get you know hit just because of the the broader um, yeah. impact <clears throat> of the market. So I guess how you know how do you try to distinguish between underperformance versus you know it just underperformed because of uh, you know, a broader market impact, you know, reflexivity in markets that's caused them problems. Yeah, so I think what you're maybe alluding to is how do you differentiate between luck, whether it's good or bad, mm. the actual skill and actually kind of true alpha, as you call it. So an example is, without naming names, it was, you know, a manager we know very well in kind of the credit space Um the kind of absolute return, total return credit space. So at one point in time, they would have been down over the course of um, Q1. I think they were down 20%. And a lot of it was, they were holding a lot of high quality securitized assets. Um, obviously the, the, the bid ask spread and these assets blew out and it was actually, you know, you, you couldn't sell these things if you wanted to. So the mark to market impact was, was quite traumatic. They've had like 10 to 12% recovery since the trough in the mark to market of the book. But you know, they themselves and the quality of the assets they hold, just little to, you know, it's not a non-zero, but there's a very low probability chance there will be any impairment on, on those sort of assets. But again, it was a mark-to-market issue. So to a certain degree, there's, um, there's a level of bad luck with something like that. Um, and by the very, very nature of what they were holding, you know, it's the question is less so around the performance per se, but more around were they kind of taking certain levels of risk not necessarily mark-to-market volatility risk, but certain levels of risk uh, meeting their objectives uh, in the particular strategy they're running. On the flip side of that, there's another manager we know in the equity space. They've delivered, um, as of the end of April, they've delivered uh, 20% alpha versus an MSCI World benchmark over the last four months. So while the MSCI World is still down, I think 11 or 12% as of the end of April, this particular manager is up Eight and a half, nine percent positive, uh, you know, absolute for the for the for the for the last four months, 
And again, you know, there's a certain level of skill and they're persistent manager, but that level of alpha, quite a sizable portion of it is down to pure luck. So as an example, one of the investments or the sort of investments they've made were the type of industries that have done fantastically well on the back of this particular crisis. So certain remote uh, access uh, VC companies or anything that kind of would have done positively as a company and a revenue perspective on the back of people working remotely from around the world. But that manager, the reason they've done so well and what reason what particular stocks they've invested in done well might be to do with a thesis that's due to play out over the next five to seven years that has been accelerated quite rapidly over the course of a couple of months, given what's what, what, what's going on globally. Um, so there's still a level of skill and insight that, that's attributed to that particular alpha. But at the same time, there's a certain level of positive luck. So again, you know, there is, so, so it is difficult to, to kind of, you know, pick active managers. It is difficult. Investment is is tough. Um, you know, pure skill is difficult to find. But there is, you know, part of what we try and do is differentiate between what is luck, whether it's good or bad luck, versus what's actually pure skill and insights. So com- coming back to the, the SAA, where, where we started, and as I said, absolutely understand that this is a, a long-term piece, but it was all, it was also a question about, you know, the potential impact from COVID. You know, you, you talk about sort of the changing nature of, of work for people and the societal change. You know, we, we've also seen, you know, a big decrease in in uh, in market price, asset prices initially, and then you've seen a very significant recovery in, in the equity markets in the US. You know, so how do you then rethink, you know, in terms of what's happened there? You know, how do you position yourself maybe to protect yourself potentially if uh, the markets run a little bit ahead of, of where the, the economic fundamentals are? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good question. So obviously, as you've said, you, the US equity markets in particular have rebound, rebounded very, very strongly uh, versus other equity markets globally. So if, if you think of, you know, from an SCA decision as at the end of March, um, a lot of people... A lot of people's portfolios um, would have been maybe out of whack somewhat. Um, you know, there would have been by the very nature of them, private assets wouldn't move as, as, as rapidly in terms of their valuations. So you might have a very large overweight versus your SAA and your private markets, but you also then have a large underweight on your equity markets. And this is something that, you know, is, happens time and time again, whenever there's a crisis of, of, of these sort of magnitudes. It's what we saw in 2008 with a lot of pension funds around the world. It's what we would have saw in 2001 as well. And, you know, through time, that balance between private markets and the slow-moving valuations or volatility, per se, of of their valuations versus what you've seen more in the equities and fixed income markets, which are more faster moving. So it is is a balance between, at its trough, do you – how do you balance back versus your your SAAs and uh, your equity holdings? So, given the rebound in equity in the U.S. equity markets, you know, again, how you play that is, is maybe more kind of a DA position in the short term. And um, but it's through the long term, it should be more kind of you, you sticking with what you think your longer term SAA um, allocations will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess the next, my next sort of question that comes comes out from from the SAA is, you know, as you think about where interest rates are, 
you know, are, are you really starting to reconsider the risk premiums that, that you're pricing across the whole portfolio? So where interest rates are, does that, does that affect the, how you think about the long-term risk premium across different asset classes? Partic- yeah, so particularly around you know, the, the threat that interest rates could go negative um, and then what that may, may do um, and, and how do you think about the broader uh, ramifications of that. You know, the, I guess a flip side of, of lower interest rates is, yes, you get lower nominal rates, but sometimes the real rates of these assets will, will, will actually increase. And so how does that then filter back into, into your portfolio uh, mix? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's one of those ones, I, I suppose, how, how I think about it is that, you know, long-term expect returns and returns on different asset classes is, can, can be thought of as an amalgamation of disk and different risk premium. So if you think about your, uh, your expect return on a credit portfolio, it's a combination of cash plus your term risk premium for your duration risk, and then you add a credit risk premium on top of that. Um, high yield will add an additional risk premium on top of that. Your equity return will be your cash plus some combination of a term premium from interest rates and then an equity risk premium of equities long-term over you know government bonds, given that equities themselves are, are long-duration assets. And then your small cap equity will be an additional premium on top of that, or emerging market equities might be an emerging market premium on top of that. Through time, they will fluctuate a bit, but through time for the long term in terms of, and this will feed into your SEAs, those risk premiums shouldn't really change too much through time or, or, or they, you know, this is what you think the, the long-term risk premium will, will evolve. So even where cash and interest rates go, the risk premium themselves shouldn't change too much. So what will happen is that if your blended long-term expect return on equities is 5 to 6%, assuming cash at 1% and cash goes down to zero and nothing else happens long-term to your other risk premium, you'd expect your equity returns to go from 5 to 6% down to maybe 4 to 5%. Mm-hmm. Notwithstanding that, though, and it's something we would have seen in Europe, you know, there is to be aware of additional bias that as rates start going negative or go to that zero bound, the true that zero bound, are there kind of behavioral biases or behavioral consequences on the risk premia that you know that may might affect in the short to medium term, you know, a divergence from the long-term risk premium. So what I mean by that is that there might be certain investors that can't hold negatively yielding assets. Um, so in particular, from my experience in Europe, we would have seen this. What that means sometimes is a lot of European, you know, if we use the context of Europe over the last number of years, that as interest rates went zero and it went negative in Europe and government bonds, there was and addition, the, the credit risk premium was somewhat kind of compressed even further on certain European assets purely because people needed yields no matter what. What this meant was they were taking maybe a lot more undue risk um, for a given absolute return figure um, that wouldn't be warranted if, if rates were maybe zero or were in positive territory. It's, a, it's an incredible time, right, to, to work out what... Where where is uh, capital flow going? And and you sort of mentioned the issue of of negative rates being a problem, but we're also starting to see a few little blow ups in the in the credit space. You saw a situation earlier uh, this week, I think it was, with United trying to get away some bonds and having to offer almost twelve percent somewhere around that place, and and they couldn't even get it away. So on one hand, you've got risk premiums contracting and people sort of 
uh, allocating money and just taking any returns. But then on the other side, there seems to be a, a, a blow up in terms of the spreads for, for some of these other assets. How, do, how are we supposed to understand this, uh, this backdrop? So credit spreads, uh, you know, IG, Baha'i Yield in particular, obviously blew out quite a lot um, at the trough for the market. They've, they've rallied in quite a bit and there's, there's probably quite a bit way to go with them. I think in the credit space that, you know, over the last 10 years, globally, um, corporate balance sheets have expanded quite a lot. Um, you know, at the moment, globally, in particular in the US, in the investment grade credit space, more than 50%, I think it might be 55% of all investment grade at triple B rated names. Um, you, you, you've already started seeing some of these and there will be a natural migration uh, from some of these names from investment grade down to sub-investment grade or, or high yield. So um, ironically, while that will have certain repercussions, because again, there's certain investors in, out there that may not be able to hold anything that's not investment grade. And there could be, you know, there's different ways of playing that. There might be forced selling as soon as, uh, as a bond or issuer gets downgraded to, to high yield. At the same time, in the high yield space, it's quite interesting that double Bs as a percentage of the high yield space is probably at an all-time high, especially in the US. So as you get a migration from the high triple Bs into the double Bs, the quality of both the investment grade space and obviously the high yield space both improves uh, for the same course of action. So what you're, what you're ultimately compensated for with credit spread is effectively the expected loss plus some sort of liquidity premium. Um, expected loss on, on your credit is, is a combination of default probabilities as well as recovery rates or loss given defaults. Recovery, there will be an uptick in default, in defaults and you're starting to see that. Um, I, I think people are maybe forecasting high yield falls could be between 8 and 10%. That's where kind of markets are implying at the moment. The second side of the coin is around the recovery rates. So historically, recovery rates and high yield have been probably around 40%. That's what they're priced in CDSs. But, you know, a lot of people are expecting that in this default environment, which is expected, recovery rates would be even lower. So that means overall your expected loss would be higher. So your credit spreads should be higher. Again, where credit spreads are at the moment, you know, there's still a, a bit of fair value or, you know, or a bit of kind of movement in them to go a bit tighter uh, but it, it, it will so we will or you should see an increase in default rates and um, it will be a different sort of default cycle i think than we had in 2008 uh, recovery rates potentially could be lower uh, for a lot of kind of structural <clears throat> reasons um, but longer term you know credit is probably as a lot of uh, like a lot of other asset classes out there is still quite an attractive um, space to play if, if you know what you're doing and in particular it's an area for where if you're if you can get good, really good, high quality active managers, it's an area that can can deliver. We believe um, a certain um, certain amount of alpha going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned a lot there about the recovery rates and the potential for default. Are you worried about potential risks or blowback from from the credit space leading to then problems in the equity markets? You, you know, in terms of that flow on effect. Yeah, it's it's a great question because again, there's different. You know, my own view on it. There's, <clears throat> they're all kind of linked up, and you know, sometimes when we th- we talk about markets and we think about markets, we very much, you know, as an industry, we can kind of get a bit siloed. You know, we talk about equity markets and we talk separately on credit markets, and the the, the rebound in 
the US and equity markets is probably slightly different from what we're seeing in, in credit markets in, in, in that same region. I think credit spreads, and in particular high yield spreads, are very highly correlated, just a spread component with, with, um, with equity markets. So when equity markets uh, <coughs> trough or, or fall dramatically, you, you see high yield spreads blowing out, blow out. It's all to do with the capital structure. So you have your senior debt, subordinator, high yield debt, and then you finally have your equity. So in terms of a capital structure of the general uh, generic corporate, um, it, it makes sense. So the, given what's going on in the corporate space and the potential for high defaults, there is there is, there is is a consideration uh, and there is a potential for a negative feedback loop that could feed into equity markets. So, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the kind of the corporates are, are as I said, there's, there's quite a large cohort or triple B at the moment. A lot of these are kind of big names uh, in the equity space and kind of well-known <clears throat> blue chip names. So there will be kind of certain considerations around them. If any of them get into severe trouble, they probably won't. Uh, but again, it, it is consideration around that. The other aspect with some of these companies is, uh, especially in the high yield space, that some of them, not all of them, are underpinned less by public listed equity, <clears throat> but by private equity. And there's a consideration, you know, what's going on in the private equity space, how that will feed into the credit markets, which then itself could have a second knock-on effect into the public markets in the equity space. That's a perfect transition to to the private space more broadly, uh, particularly in the Australian market. There's a, a lot of interest about the unlisted uh, markets and and yeah. you know, the, the the great opportunity that's there within infrastructure, real estate, private equity as a place to get great risk premium. Uh, you know, and and to sort of dial down the volatility because they're not marked to market. I'm curious on, on your thoughts, given your background, uh, and and looking at this private side. You know, what, what's your take on on what's happening in the Australian market? Are, are people trying to, you know, hide some of the underlying risks with, with some of these assets? Yeah. So, I've, I've, you know, I've spent probably a certain good portion of my career dealing with. Private assets, uh, you know, directly, uh, you know, in right in the, the in the thick of deals and some very kind of chunky, uh, large European uh, deals in particular, some distressed assets as well, um, as well as kind of what I've done in, in, in the public side. So you know, it, it's it's an interesting um, uh, uh, question. I think you know when we think about multi-sector funds or say super fund or any kind of large asset owner that has many different asset classes, you know, with, I think private mar- private markets and private assets in particular, I think they're a fantastic um, investment. I think there's there's a lot of, you know, you, you get the right investments, you build the right portfolio around them. Um, you know, they're quite an interesting, but, but they come with certain risks and risks that sometimes people kind of underestimate. And, you know, some of that would have played out in Australia over, over the last couple of weeks and months. Um, you know, it, it, I think there's been a lot of that said, said in the press. But when you think about a portfolio like that, uh, th- there is a natural tension at times or imbalance between um, the private side of the portfolio as well as the public or listed side of the portfolio. Where the public listed side of your portfolio is your equities, your your fixed income uh, side, and sometimes maybe your hedge fund if you can get liquidity in that. Where the tension is is around um, liquidity, <clears throat> because sometimes um, you, you have a few different reasons. As we touched upon earlier on, with regards to SAA, due to the mark-to-market 
daily mark to market of your equity and fixed income and potentially your hedge fund portfolios if you hold hedge funds, they're um, in, a, in quite a market correction. Your allocation uh, to your li- listed side of your portfolio, your public side of your portfolio, could be well below its SAA. And obviously, the private side of your portfolio could be well be above its SAA target. So do you rebalance? And how do you do that, given that you can't sell some of your private assets? I think the other thing with private markets sometimes is, you know, what, when when you go into certain private investments, um, there is there's obviously uncalled capital. So if you commit $100 million to a certain property or infrastructure or private equity fund, after two years, you might have drawn down $40 million. You have $60 million uncalled capital. Like, that effectively can be called at any stage by, by the underlying manager. This capital obviously is, you know, you can think of it nearly as a liability, would reside somewhere in your overall portfolio. And, you know, people sometimes think it's cash, but it could be in your equity portfolio, it could be in your fixed income portfolio. That, that capital, if it needs to be called against you at any point in time, is, you know, in normal circumstances, it can come from your listed equities or your listed fixed income, uh, which isn't too much of an issue when markets are liquid. However, though, in situations like we've seen over, over the recent uh, past, and this, these are more kind of extreme situations, when you have markets down quite a lot, um, you, that, and that, that capital is called on the private side, effectively you, you're, you are crystallizing losses at the bottom of the market, maybe on your equities or your credit securities to fund investments on the private side that might be the opportune time to do that. So there is that imbalance. And, you know, in my previous role, in Ireland, you know, this is something by the very nature of the portfolios we're running there. This is something we worried about and thought about on a regular basis. We, we framed it in a way that the public side or your listed side of your portfolio had effectively so short a liquidity option, the private side of the portfolio that could be called against at any stage. The reason we were paranoid about it was obviously in the in the previous um, incarnation of the Sovereign Wealth Fund in, in 08, we, we saw this very this happen. Uh, in a very real basis. Um, and we, we also, you know, in, in a country that went into an IMF bailout in 2010, we were quite sensitive to certain things like this. So it, it, it is it, it is an ongoing risk. Um, other sovereign wealth funds and other large asset owners in the US and North America would experience something similar in 08, 09. Uh, with the oil correction in 2015, you would have had certain uh, jurisdictions and countries that, and certain organizations that, had to kind of the same imbalance between the public and private side of your portfolio. So it is a consideration um, and it, it is that natural tension that people maybe may not give as much kind of credence to because it's the focus on maybe other things in the portfolio. And it's a, it's a tension that really only comes to the fore when you've had extreme market situations. In, in addition to the liquidity issue, you know, what, what's, your, what's your take on sort of the the underlying risk that sort of sits in it because they're only marked to market, you know, occasionally or at a quarter. In the case of PE, it's only marked to market usually uh, every six months or if there's a capital raise, you know, how, how do you then factor that in? So obviously there's a liquidity issue, but how do you factor in, you know, it, it almost as this downweight, do you, you know, do you have a proxy for the risk of these sorts of assets? Yeah. Like I, I think, you know, with, with, if you, if you take a side to mark to market side things, if you were hold, a listed security, a listed equity or a listed property or infrastructure asset versus an unlisted one. And they were very, very similar in nature. And you 
didn't have to sell your listed security for 10 years, 15 years, all things being equal, they should deliver the same return through time. <clears throat> may not be the case. Um, and the reason is, um, the, the reason is, you know, there's, there's an illiquidity premium attached to it, but, you know, through time, you, you should expect that they should, all things being equal. I, I think where people kind of, you know, private assets sometimes have, by their nature, a bit more embedded leverage in them um, than public assets, um, <clears throat> as well as to probably make in their nature kind of very much a bit more complex. So rolling through the leverage and the illiquidity and complexity aspect of it, you should, all things being equal, be, be experiencing or expecting um, a higher um, uh, a higher risk premium. The mark-to-market side of things, you know, that can work in your favor in many ways. I don't think it's the only reason why you should hold private assets. Um, I think if you're holding private assets just because on the front they seem like lower volatility, that's not necessarily kind of the, the prudent way to approach. It should be about the quality of the assets and maybe are you getting something different in terms of return or different exposure. So as an example, in the US over the last years, and this has been a trend kind of, uh, but in the US in particular, there's been a trend over the last 20 years where the number of listed companies has been getting less and less. I think it's maybe dropped by 50% or so um, on the, the US stock exchanges. So you're getting a different sort of exposure if you go into private equity, for example, in the US, which may be more geared towards middle market uh, companies or smaller companies, or even maybe touching into venture capital, which would be more kind of growth, uh, very upcoming companies. So by the, the delisting trend that's going on, which seems to continue, you, you're, the, the exposure you're getting, if you think it to an economy, is less. So private assets might give you something different than you would normally. Another example is private debt. So the, the stepping back of banks and the trend over the last five to eight years globally uh, means that a lot of companies, generally middle market to smaller enterprises, aren't getting the bank financing. And, and this has allowed private or alternative lenders to kind of step into that space and lend to some of these companies. So private debt is, if, if you kind of strip away the credit risk premium and the quality of as well as the illiquidity and complexity premium, private debt is maybe giving you a different sort of exposure than you would in a purely IG space or different because banks are stepping back. So it's a different economic exposure to a certain degree. So I, th- I think that's the way you should think about it instead of just uh, investors focusing on the lower mark to market because the frequency of valuations in private space is a lot less frequent than what you see in the public space. Well, that's a, been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Ronan. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.